Hello and welcome to another episode of Latina Latino Latinx News. My name is Monty Rossetti. On today's episode, we talk to San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Budin. Covered in our conversation are his own personal insights on his time in charge as District Attorney, as well as his thoughts on the recall push against him. Let's jump into our conversation. All right, Chesa Budin, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on uh, Radio Teco. Uh, my first question that I wanted to jump into here was, let's just start off with getting to know you. What does the DA mean to you and what are some of the responsibilities of the DA? Well, great to be with you all. Um, muchas gracias por la invitación. So important to have bilingual, culturally competent, and linguistically fluent um, communication and services and uh, and media coverage. So thank you for doing that for San Francisco's diverse communities. The DA's office uh, to me is a institution that is focused on trying to do justice and build public safety for all of our communities. And, you know, traditional DA's have really waited for crimes to occur and then gotten involved um, after someone's arrested and have focused on punishment and retribution. What we're trying to do in our office is to be proactive, to prevent crimes from occurring, and to make sure that we're providing support and services to people who've been harmed by crime. So it's a little bit of a broader focus than just punishment uh, after police make an arrest. No, thank you for saying that. And and we'll, we'll talk about that kind of um, down the road here. But uh, let's start off also in the beginning of your, your term as a district attorney. You, you uh, became the district attorney January 8th, 2020 with the uh, promise to complete massive changes, such as establishing a unit to reevaluate wrongful convictions and refusing to assist Immigration and Customs Enforcement, aka ICE, with raids and arrests. Then only two months later, the pandemic started. How has the pandemic affected your plan of reform? Well, that's right, Monty. I've officially been in office now about 27 months, and I've only really been able to go into my office physically consistently for about two of those months. Uh, the rest of the time, we've had some level of shelter in place or work from home requirements for our staff. And it's obviously been a huge challenge uh, for me as a newly elected official trying to run an important uh, department, but also for all of us. I mean, I think about the frontline workers. I think about the folks whose family members have gotten sick, who didn't have health insurance. Uh, I think about people who have been cut off from their families. Uh, because of COVID-19. And it's been a huge challenge. It's changed pretty much everything about how we live our lives, how we do business, uh, how we prosecute criminal cases. Uh, in terms of reform, you know, it's definitely been an obstacle. It's taken a huge amount of time and energy, but I'm really proud of the work we've done in these last couple of years, uh, even despite those obstacles. So, you know, for example, um, we have followed through on those promises you mentioned. We created a independent innocence commission to review cases of possible wrongful conviction. We created a post-conviction unit to look at cases where people were sentenced to unnecessarily long or punitive sentences and consider early release. We created a, um, um, a, a program that uh, created a, a diversion for a primary caregiver diversion for par parents who have 
um, young children and who get caught up in the system. We reduced, the, speaking of children, we reduced the number of kids in San Francisco's detention center by nearly 70%. We've dramatically increased language access and victim services. I created 10 new uh, positions for victim advocates in my office. And eight of those folks that we hired to fill those new positions are fully bilingual. Um, so we've, we've definitely made significant strides um, in terms of following through. We created a worker protection unit that has filed groundbreaking lawsuits against companies that systematically steal from their employees by misclassifying them, underpaying them, denying them uh, uh, overtime, wor workers' compensation, unemployment insurance. And we also filed a historic lawsuit against companies that profit by selling illegal firearms because we know one of the biggest threats to public safety in our community is firearms. And we cannot simply do the traditional thing that prosecutors do of waiting for someone to get shot and killed and then punishing the person that did it. We need to prevent that crime. We need to prevent those guns from hitting our streets. And so I'm proud of the work that my team has done, even if it's over Zoom, even if it's working remotely, to hold corporations accountable that steal, to hold corporations accountable that profit, off of exporting guns into our community and that uh, uplift victims and meet them in the language and, and, and with the cultural competency that they deserve, regardless of what part of San Francisco it happens in, regardless of what color their skin is or how much money they have in the bank. No, I just think that's interesting because, uh, you know, we've talked to various candidates on this podcast and it's obviously been a different experience uh, being a, being an elected official during a pandemic. And, and there's definitely restrictions as you, as you mentioned, another one of your focuses uh, was to eliminate cash bail. So I, can we talk about why is cash bail such a bad thing in, in, in your terms? Absolutely. And thanks for mentioning that. You know, one of the first policies that I put into effect after taking office was to prohibit my staff from asking the court to impose cash bail. Let me explain why and how it works for people who may not be familiar. Money bail is a for-profit system that really only exists in the United States and the Philippines, nowhere else in the world. And the, the way it works is that if you get arrested, you can go to a for-profit company, pay them a non-refundable fee, and buy your freedom within hours, if you've got the money. Now, the problem with it is twofold. First of all, it undermines public safety because wealthy people who are dangerous can buy their way out and continue to commit crimes. The second problem with cash bail is it undermines the promise of equal protection under law. It results in people who are presumed innocent and who are accused of low-level offenses or arrests that will never result in a criminal case languish behind bars for days, weeks, or months simply because of their poverty. In other words, it prioritizes wealth over risk. And my approach is to say, let's get rid of a wealth-based system. When people are presumed innocent, when they have yet to be convicted of a crime, it is unconstitutional to punish them preemptively. We can hold them in jail only if we can show the court that they pose a serious flight risk or risk to public safety. And if we can, if they do, then the court should hold them in custody regardless of how much money they have. And if we can't, if they don't pose a flight risk or a risk to public safety, then the court should release them with appropriate conditions regardless of whether they are rich or poor. That's what equal protection means. And that's how we advance public safety while doing justice in San Francisco. And also just talking about, you know, justice and, and, and everything. Why is it important to first understand where someone is coming from before they are labeled a criminal and thrown into a prison system based on modern day slavery? 
Yeah, context matters a lot. Um, it matters for a few reasons. You know, you can hear that, for example, you can hear that somebody was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And some people will immediately say, well, that's murder and you should go to prison for life. But as prosecutors, we need to be able to prove that that shooting was not lawful. So the first question is, was it self-defense? Was it an accident? What is the context in which this shooting and killing or whatever the crime may be occurred? We have to do that because we can't convict someone of a crime unless we can negate or, or eliminate beyond a reasonable doubt any possible legal justification or defense. So we have to think about every criminal case, first and foremost, from the standpoint of, can we prove that what happened happened and that it happened in a way that was actually a crime? Second of all, there's a big difference between someone who um, you know, has a long history of mental illness and when untreated results in arrest on the one hand and someone who is committing crimes knowing full well what they're doing, aware of, of the consequences of their actions uh, and doing it because of some sort of malice or uh, greed or what have you. And so we try to identify well, what is the driving force behind this criminal behavior and how can we hold people accountable in a way that gets at that root cause of crime. Let, let me explain why that's so important because my, my priority is public safety. And what we've seen over decades of failed policies leading to mass incarceration is a revolving door. We've seen that people get arrested, they get warehoused, and then they get released without rehabilitation, without treatment, and without individual uh, interventions, without individualized treatment or rehabilitation plans. The problem with that is if you take someone who's mentally ill or someone who's got a substance abuse disorder and you put them in jail for a week or a month or a year, and then you dump them back on the streets, we know what's going to happen. We've seen it for decades all across this country. It does not provide people with the treatment they need, with the rehabilitation they need, with the services or the job training. And so we're simply ensuring that there will be more crime in the future. That's what's happened for generations in this country. What we're trying to do with our movement and with our policies is we are trying really hard to identify what is driving the behavior, to understand the particular facts and circumstances of the individual, and to hold them accountable in a way that changes for the better the future path that they're on so that we can prevent future crime, so we can minimize the harm and the number of people who will be victimized in the future. No, I'm happy, I'm happy you brought this up, too, because this leads into my next question. Um, I think, you know, the summer of 2020, the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot a, of, of interest in diverting funds away from the police and and, and moving it to other uh, factors like, you know, mental health programs for, for people that need that help. How has that been, uh, that goal of yours, been able to, to go about ever since that summer? And and have you been able to, to achieve very much of, of, you know, diverting funds for offenders that are going to mental health and substance abuse programs instead of pursuing uh, convictions and incarcerations? Yeah, you know, the the murder of George Floyd was a, a moment of national reckoning. And, it, you know, we, we saw in San Francisco, the chief of police and the mayor called for defunding the police. Uh, you know, my view has always been that we need to be as efficient as possible in spending tax dollars that are focused on public safety. And we need to have evidence that shows that investing money in a particular area is gonna get us the best return on that investment. 
Um, and we know that one of the areas that has been historically really underfunded is reentry housing, is mental health care, is drug treatment. Um, it's something that I've been an advocate of since back in 2019 when I was on the campaign trail. But if you look to Eugene, Oregon, for example, they've got a program called CAHOOTS, which is a non-law enforcement 24-7 response to 911 calls. And what happens is if somebody calls 911 in Eugene, Oregon, the operator gets information and then decides, is this a fire emergency? Is this a police emergency? Or is this a mental health social work emergency? And they have, I think, about a third of their calls get diverted to the mental health and social work team. Now, that does a couple of really important things. First of all, it allows the police to limit their resources, to focus their resources on actual crimes in progress, home invasions, armed robbery, murder, stabbings. That means they can do a better job clearing or solving actual crimes in progress, right? Limited resources, you've got to focus them where you are uniquely positioned to respond. And it does a second thing, which is it allows people with the skills and the training who are less expensive for the city and more specialized in their skill set to deal with mental health crises, with overdoses, and with folks who simply need to get off of the street and into housing or shelter. Um, we started to build out that infrastructure in San Francisco, but it has a long way to go before it's fully funded 24-7 citywide. Uh, and I know that we have a real urgent need for those kinds of services um, and for those kinds of on-call social workers and case managers who, rather than police, where situations can escalate, people can get shot and killed or injured, um, we can have folks who show up not with a tool set that's a firearm and a set of handcuffs, but rather with a deep knowledge of mental illness and substance use and the services that are available in the city to get people connected with care, not cages. I, I agree with that. And, and my next question is actually something that I've seen up a lot on social media, but I just wanted to see what your response is to people who bring up cases of repeat offenders not being prosecuted. What's the process and, and why does that happen? And why has that happened in, in the past year in San Francisco? Sure. Well, first of all, it's, it's really rare. I mean, it's a meme. It's a trope that, of course, um, some some really conservative folks love to, to bring out. But it's not a, actually a reality of our system. The, the, the reality is that when police make arrests and bring us evidence, more often than not, we are filing criminal charges against people and trying to hold them accountable using the tools in our tool belt. Um, but we can't ignore limitations in investigation or facts in a particular case. So, you know, if someone's been arrested multiple times before, obviously that's a red flag for us. And obviously we want to intervene in ways that are effective and proportionate to what they're accused of. But a judge and a jury aren't allowed to know that the person was arrested last week for something else. Um, that's not usually going to come into evidence. And so we still need the police to bring us enough evidence in each case to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed a crime. Prior arrests don't uh, lower the burden of proof for prosecutors or for police. And so there's a lot of frustration appropriately with the failings of the criminal justice system to rehabilitate people. The thing that's so misleading about the, the discourse in San Francisco is people suggest that recidivism or, or repeat offenses are a result of criminal justice reform. When in reality, we know that they are a feature of mass incarceration. Look at anywhere in the state of California, people coming home from state prison are more likely than not to be rearrested and reincarcerated within a couple of years of their arrest. 
what we're trying to do in San Francisco is find more effective ways than simple reincar than simple incarceration to break that cycle, to end mm -hmm. that revolving door. And so, of course, there are still some instances in San Francisco, as in every jurisdiction in this country, where somebody gets prosecuted, gets convicted, serves their time or completes probation or whatever program the court orders, and in some instances will still be arrested. But the reality is the diversion programs that we're emphasizing, the restorative justice programs that we're expanding, have a track record documented with empirical evidence, data-driven, that show a significant decline in rearrest rates for people who complete those programs than for people who go through the traditional process. Compare San Francisco with Oakland or Sacramento or other jurisdictions with tough-on-crime prosecutors that are doing things the way they've been done for decades. Oakland has a homicide rate four times higher per capita than the one in San Francisco. Sacramento has seen crime rates skyrocket in the last two years. We're doing better in San Francisco. Not that we don't have our challenges and our problems. Of course we do. We have serious problems when it comes to public safety that we are working to fix. And we are using evidence and data and research to improve our outcomes. And it's working. As I mentioned earlier as well, uh, one of your focuses was police accountability. Uh, why does police accountability remain so elusive? And this is maybe not only in San Francisco, but just, you know, uh, our nation in, in general. And, and why is it so difficult to achieve, again, not only in San Francisco, but just in our nation in general? Police and police unions have become accustomed, even entitled to the idea that they and their members can commit crimes, including murder with impunity, that there will be no consequences, no matter how egregious the conduct. You watch that horrible video of George Floyd being murdered. And you think about what could possibly allow someone wearing a uniform, wearing a star on their chest, having sworn an oath to protect and serve the public, knowing full well that they're being videoed and witnessed by people for nine minutes and to continue on with that murder. It is a deeply entrenched sense of impunity and being above the law that leads individuals like that officer to use excessive force, to racially profile, to shoot and to kill. It's not every day that it happens, it's not every officer, but it is a culture of impunity that has allowed extremists to believe that they can get away with murder. And the challenges and the obstacles to changing that culture are massive. And they're not just as simple as electing a new district attorney, though that's you know one critical part of what San Francisco did when they elected me. It's not as simple as saying we're gonna change this law or have more training for officers. All of that may be part of a solution, but there are entrenched obstacles at literally every step of the way. Expert witnesses are unwilling to testify that police used force unlawfully. Juries are hesitant to convict officers. The people who are often victims of use of force by police themselves often are mentally ill or unhoused or are people of color. And so when you, or put them on a witness stand against a professional trained witness officer that has the full resources and support of the entire police department to help them win their case. Um, the odds are steep. They're really steep. Mm -hmm. And many district attorneys simply don't want to run the political risk of angering wealthy, powerful, loud police unions by prosecuting their members, no matter what the facts show, no matter what the video evidence is. Um, and so I think one of the things that has been a real um, awakening for many of us who do this work in the last year in particular 
is that as much as the country rose up in righteous rage after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were killed, the actual work of changing the culture, of normalizing the idea that if someone who is a police officer or a sheriff's deputy commits a crime, they will be held accountable for it, has not been done. It has not been done anywhere in this country. And the work of doing it in San Francisco is tremendously challenging. And it is one of the reasons, clearly, why I am facing not one but now two separate recalls in my first two years in office. The police union is used to and demands impunity, and they will spend any amount of money and spread any amount of lies to try and get back to a status quo where they can do literally whatever they want. No, and you brought up the recall. My last two questions are, are centered around this recall uh, or these recalls. Uh, why do you think recalls have become so popular here in California, starting with Governor Newsom's uh, at the end of, of 2021, then the Board of Education uh, earlier earlier this year, and now this recall against you? And do you also see it as kind of like um, it's it's taken away the democratic process that we have as a country where you elect someone for X amount of years and you should be able to reelect them or vote whatever way you want at the end of that term? Definitely. I mean, let's look at the democratic process and let's look at who's backing this recall, just like the one against Newsom and, and others. Um, it is extreme right-wing elements. The recall is funded almost entirely by a handful of Republican billionaires, folks who are bankrolling the national Republican agenda, who've given Mitch McConnell millions of dollars. These are not folks who share or represent San Francisco values or who even understand the challenges of everyday working people in our city. And let's also be clear about who's endorsed the recall, the San Francisco Republican Party. Meanwhile, opposing the recall, we've got the Democratic Party, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, and so many other organizations and leaders, elected officials, formerly elected officials, the Green Party, the Latino Democratic Club, the Harvey Milk Club. Um, the reality is that the right-wingers know they cannot win elections in a place like California or San Francisco, not fair and square, not in head-to-head -head elections where voters see their ideas, demand that they make specific promises and commitments, evaluate their candidates' credentials. They can't win those races. And so instead of allowing me to fulfill the promises I made to voters, instead of allowing my office to do a difficult job under difficult circumstances, they're spending millions of dollars to attack, to undermine, to exploit tragedies, to promote fear, and to undermine criminal justice reform. They believe they have a better chance of preventing the progress that we're making, of, 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 of locking kids up, of cooperating with ICE um, in, in immigration cases, of um, uh, bringing money bail back to privilege the wealthy and powerful. They have a better chance of allowing police to continue to kill with impunity and politicians to engage in corruption with impunity if they use a recall because they won't have to put their candidate to the test. Now, I believe voters in San Francisco elected me to a four-year term and that I should be allowed to finish that term. I believe that we are making concrete progress to achieve the goals and the commitments that we made to voters in 2019. And I am certain that the voters in San Francisco deserve the right to have a say at the ballot in who their next district attorney is. This recall will take that right away from you. If you care about who your district attorney is, if you want the democratic process of debates and candidate forums and endorsements and competing ideas in a marketplace for votes, 
If you want that process to help decide who the next district attorney is, then you've got to oppose this recall. Vote no on Prop H. You answered both of my questions in one. So uh, thank you for that. And I think that's a really good way to leave us off. Uh, Chesa Boudin, district attorney here of San Francisco. Again, thank you so much for your time. And we'll be sticking around with you with uh, any other updates coming up uh, as we get closer to this, this recall and afterwards. Thanks so much. Great to speak with you and look forward to celebrating on the other side. Have a good day and uh, hope, hopefully we can continue the conversation soon. As the podcast of the community newspaper El Tecolote, we think hearing from you is important. So please leave us a comment, rating, and share our podcast to other members of the community. Thank you.